Good morning. Go ahead, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Joshua's at the age now where he is starting to understand and follow commands. But one thing I've learned or noticed, and this is something that probably should have been obvious, but wasn't obvious until I went through it, was he doesn't understand the words of a command first. He understands the demonstration of it first. So, for example, if when, I, when I say sit down, well, he has no idea what sit down means. To him, that's a foreign language. It could have a thousand different meanings to him. But the demonstration of it, of me sitting down, he's able to then take that and imitate it. And it might take a week, it might take a month before he's able to connect the words with the demonstration or with the action and then be able to follow it. And I think we as adults are similar. Not in all ways, but in a lot of ways, we need to see the demonstration in order to understand the words of it. For example, if I was to ask everybody here, what does it mean or what does it look like to care for one another? I think we would get a lot of different answers. Some people would give us a dictionary type answer. Others would give us an answer based off of their experience. Some people would give us an answer that's very general, while others would give us an answer that's very specific. I would argue this morning from the text that Paul is demonstrating to the Thessalonians what it means or what it looks like to care for one another. Let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But this is the word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. A little bit of review. Paul was with the Thessalonians for about three months, and while he was there, he was preaching the word of God, Jesus is Lord, and the city didn't like that. The city turned violent. Jason was dragged through the streets. Paul had to slip out at night, leaving behind these newborn, maybe three-month-old Christians. And we pick up here in verse 17 with Paul saying, But since we were torn away from you, Torn away has a lot of descriptive words that we can grasp, but I want to bring in the Greek translation that also means orphaned, since we were orphaned away from you. I like orphaned because it brings about the family dynamic that Paul's already established as a nursing mother or an encouraging father. But orphaned also brings about the dynamic of sudden, unexpected departure. Because an orphan never plans on being orphaned. A parent that suddenly dies and leaves behind their children never plans on suddenly leaving behind their children. And in this same way, Paul's saying, I was orphaned from you. You guys were orphaned from me. It's easy to read into it to think, 
Well, there were probably things of the way Paul had to unexpectedly slip away, he didn't get to say to them. There were probably things that he was planning on preparing them even more so for that he wasn't able to teach them. And the reason why I want us to really bring that out and put ourselves in Paul's shoes is because if we understand that more, it gives us more detail or more clarity on how Paul's demonstrating his care for the Thessalonians. Let your eyes glance over verse 17 and you'll see a lot of the effectual love language that Paul's really already um, said before. And the good thing about going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that I don't have to reteach what's already been taught. So if we boil verse 17 down, what's Paul saying? He says, in my care for you guys, I greatly desire to see you face to face. And we have to define this, this desire to see them face to face. Because in our Midwest culture, it's very normal to say to somebody, hey, we should have you over sometime. And then a month later, go back to them and say, hey, we should have you over sometime. And repeat that process four or five different times before we actually have the people over. And I don't know why that is, but that just seems to be the norm. And that's not at all what Paul's getting at here when he says he desires to see them face to face. He doesn't just desire it in merely words. He means action as well. Look down at the middle of verse 17. You see the word endeavored. And we don't typically use that word. But that word just simply means to try or to make an attempt. So we could read verse 17 and bring in 18 to say, Paul's saying, we tried to see you face to face again and again. He's made attempt after attempt to come see them. This isn't just words. He's actually put attempts in here. Paul's not saying he desires to see them face to face in merely words. There's action that goes with it as well. Two years ago, the COVID pandemic broke out. And if you can believe it, it's been two years since we were in the stay-at-home order. This time, maybe three weeks into not being able to gather together on Sunday mornings. And I remember people were making the best of it. You know, being stuck at home 24-7 with your family is great. Watching church online in your pajamas. But I also remember as week to week the stay-at-home order got extended, you could start to hear the longing in our voices of wanting to gather together to see each other on Sunday mornings, of this desire to see one another face to face. And that's more similar to what Paul's getting at here when he says he desires to see them face to face. And no matter what you think of the pandemic, no matter what you think of the stay-at-home orders, I think we can all agree God used that time to give us a greater understanding of the gift that we have in being able to see one another face to face on Sunday mornings. He gave us a greater understanding of the importance of being able to gather together, the importance of prioritizing in our lives, having brothers and sisters seeing each other through the middle of the week. I remember a year ago, now COVID's come to our church, and Pastor Jeff says, it's shut down, you can't come up to the church, here's a list of people that tested positive, you know, if you came within six feet of them, well then you've got to isolate, you've got to quarantine, you can't leave your house for two weeks. And I remember during that time, somebody saying something along the lines of, nobody's listening to him. People are still, I'm glad you laughed at that. People are still gathering together. <laughs> People are still gathering together at parks you know, with their kids. People are still opening their homes up together. Um, nobody's listening to him. People, despite being the stay-at-home order, are still wanting to gather together. 
And I won't tell you who that was, Rachel Reese, because that would be disobeying your elders. <laughs> but to her point and to my point as well, we now had this desire or this appreciation, this understanding of the gift that God has given us and being able to see one another face to face. And now we were going to go to great lengths to continue doing so. And that is much, much closer to what Paul's saying here to the Thessalonians. And I care for you guys in such a way that I desire to see you face to face. It's not just a words of merely words, it's action as well. And if we continue reading, we don't exactly know why specifically Paul wasn't able to see them face to face. So we don't know the specifics of the failed attempts, but Paul is specific to say in verse 18, Satan hindered us. And the significance here is that Satan doesn't want Christians to gather together. True. Satan wants Christians isolated away from one another. The sheep isolated away from the flock are the easiest for the wolves to pick off. And so Satan, preventing Paul, the spiritual father's sheep, from returning to the Thessalonians, Satan's leaving these newborn Thessalonian sheep completely vulnerable. And we can read into this if we think back to the beginning of chapter 2, throughout chapter 2. Paul's needing to defend him being there with them, that it wasn't in vain, there was a purpose. He's needing to defend that he did bring the true word of God. It wasn't words of flattery but he spoke with boldness in God. He needed to remind them that his labor, his toil, he worked night and day, not just so that he wouldn't be a burden to them, but so that he could preach the word of God to them. And I think what Paul's getting at here in defending himself, his actions in that, is because he understands the dangers of isolation. It's very easy for Satan to use things like forgetfulness, tactics of confusion, I think he wasn't just using the tactics of, of affliction on the Thessalonians during the isolation, but I think he was trying to confuse them, misconstrue Paul's motives, Paul's words, his past acts of love. And if we're being honest and open and transparent with one another, then to some degree we've all felt isolated before. We've all felt as if we've been left behind by the flock in some ways. And during those times, if we're all being truthful and honest and transparent with one another, well, it's very easy for suspicion to come into mind. For our minds to then take words out of context or misconstrue or forget altogether past acts of love. And so Paul understands the danger of isolation. And I think if we are to understand the dangers of isolation, well, then it brings about two perspectives. The first being that if I know what happens to me when I'm isolated away from the flock, I don't want to be isolated away from the flock. I'm making every effort to be here on Sunday morning so I can continue to gather with brothers and sisters. And if I understand the dangers of isolation, well then even through the middle of the week, I'm prioritizing my life to where I'm having brothers and sisters in my life some way, somehow. We don't have to go specifically into application here. We can just think in whatever general way and really, maybe the thing to bring out with this is just that in Paul and Timothy and Sylvania's time, walking 20 miles took a lot out of them in that. I mean, that could take 10 hours, maybe longer, depending on the size of Timothy's bladder. But to us here, to us, going 20 miles to see one another in the middle of the week takes a half hour. That's it. 
realizing that from that perspective of our own personal, we, want, we don't want to be isolated away from the flock. But then the other perspective here is I don't want others to be isolated away either if I understand the dangers. So I'm making every effort to be aware of others within the flock that might be, be left behind or might be feeling left out. And that goes against the me, me, me ideology that the world throws at us day after day. But it's exactly an imitation of how Jesus sees us. The easy connection here is that Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep. And oftentimes that gets taught in a way of the elders are to imitate Jesus. The under-shepherds are to be looking at the chief shepherd and imitating that sense of the awareness of the flock, but not in a sense of, of, of uh, contradicting that, but in a sense of saying, but also we need to look at it in the way of Jesus went after the one sheep that was isolated away, and you and I were that one sheep. So if, we're, or if Jesus is to do that for us individually, well then we're to do that for one another. We're to go against the world mentality and have the mentality that Jesus has demonstrated to us in wanting to go after one another and wanting to go out after that one lost sheep. Paul demonstrates to the Thessalonians his care for them in that he desires, not just merely in words, but desires to see them face to face in action as well. We continue moving on in verse 19. Paul's desire is based on his value, how he values the Thessalonians. He calls them his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting. And immediately, let's just address that I thought Jesus was my hope. I thought he was my joy. I thought I boast in Jesus and Jesus alone. So what, what's Paul getting at here by saying to the Thessalonians, you're my joy, you're my hope, you're my crown of boasting. Let's look at it from two, two different angles here. First one being, when I go into a patient's home for the first time, often I'll ask them, do you have any children? And when they say yes, I'll ask them, well, how many children do you have? Where do they live? What do they do for work? And do they themselves have children? <clears throat> and from my angle of it, I'm trying just to get a good understanding of, does this patient have somebody who cares for them? To come in to help give them medication, to drive them, to follow up doctor visits, things of that sort. But oftentimes, from the patient's perspective of how specific my questions are about their children, from their perspective, it gives them an account of how well they did as a parent. And oftentimes, more times than not, they'll give a joyful account of their parenting. They'll go into, and you define success however you want to, where their children live and what type of house they live in, what kind of car they drive, you know, how well of a parent they are now to their own kids it gives the opportunity for the patient to look back on the parenting that they did, all the labor of the sleepless nights with the newborn, of the sleepless nights with the toddler who gets sick, of the nights staying up late where you gotta do the math and the science homework with them, you know, the white knuckle grip in the passenger seat as you look over into the driver's seat and now all of a sudden it's your kid driving now. All of that they look back on and say, with joy, it was all worth it that now I can look back and say, my kid turned out well. And that's similar to what Paul's saying here, in that the Thessalonians are his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting. That he looks back on the labor and how God used him, and he can say with faith, with joy, that he hopes they, their faith will persevere through the affliction. That this labor that he was used by God is not in vain in that way. 
the other angle to look at it. The Bigs were in the hospital December and January, and Jane's surgery she thought was going to be before Christmas and then on Christmas, and then they didn't get out of the hospital until like end of January. So it kept getting extended, extended. And all that time, Bob is by Jane's side, praying with her, encouraging her, pointing her to Jesus, being used by God in and through Bob to help sustain Jane's faith. And it wasn't Bob that was producing Jane's faith. It wasn't Jane producing Jane's faith, but it was Jesus and Jesus alone producing her faith through the affliction. And so during that time, Bob had this hope that Jane's faith would persevere during the affliction. And now that they're out of the hospital, Bob can look back on it and say the labor that he did was not in vain. He gives a joyful account in that sense, but he's not really looking at how God used him, worked in and through him to help persevere Jane's faith. His joyful account is all based on what Jesus and Jesus alone produced in Jane. Because it's Jesus who establishes our faith. It's Jesus who produces a faith within us in that sense. And so on the day Jesus returns, Bob is able to look forward to that day and saying, I can lift up Jane's faith, the working that Jesus has done, and present that before Jesus at his return and receive my reward in that way. Not a reward in anything that Bob did or even in how God used Bob in that way. But what Bob's doing is holding that up and saying, look at Jesus or Jesus, look at what you've done in Jane during this affliction. Look at the faith that you produced. And I use that second example because now we can broaden it. This awareness of valuing one another's faith in such a way that we want to hold up what Jesus has done in each other when Jesus returns. That's something that isn't just something for our spouse or something for our household, but that's something we want to have with one another. Because while Bob and Jane were in the hospital, we had people who were praying for them individually or gathering in groups. We had people who were writing letters of encouragement once they got out of the hospital, sending them food. Even while they were in the hospital, we had people who were calling them, who were visiting them in the hospital. All of that to say, we all shared in this hope that Jesus would produce a steadfast faith in Jane. We all have a joyful account that Jesus did produce in Jane a steadfast faith. And on the day Jesus returns, we'll all be able to share in that victory or that crown of boasting. Not a victory in ourself of how God used us and not even a victory in what Jane was able to produce in the faith, but what Jesus and Jesus alone produced in Jane during that. And that awareness goes against the me, me, me ideology that the world throws at us. That kind of awareness where we're looking out for one another in that way speaks complete opposite to what the world tells us we should be doing. But it's exactly what Jesus does for us. Paul tells the Ephesians that Jesus presents the church as his bride before himself. So the whole of the church, all of us who have been called by God to him. But Jude also tells us, and this isn't but as in contrasting, this is but also, Jude also tells us that Jesus is the one who's able to keep us from stumbling. He's the one able to present us blameless before himself in his glory with great joy. So if Jesus is to do that for each one of us individually, do not be surprised when he calls us to be presenting one another before himself. 
And again, it's not the faith of your faith that you produced or the faith that God used me to help you produce in any way. It's the faith that he produced in each one of us. And so ultimately, what we're doing is we're lifting up the working that Jesus has done and presenting one another before him and saying, this is our glory, this is our joy in what you've done. This is our hope. This is our joyful account. And the reward that we end up getting is all wrapped in what Jesus has done in one another. Verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. I kind of just already said everything there, but I want to close chapter 2 out with this because Paul seems to be defending his actions, defending his motives all throughout chapter 2. And I think in this section here that we have of these 17 through 20 verses, he's defending that, yes, I do care for you guys. You know, I know I haven't been able there, been there to see you guys and however long it's been, but I think this is enough, more evidence that Satan was using tactics of trying to confuse the Thessalonians. Remember that Paul guy? You know, how long has it been since he's been with you guys? A year, year and a half? Have you heard from him? Has he sent anybody? No? Huh. Easily think then, suspicion. Easily to misconstrue Paul's motives or Paul's words in that sense. So I think Paul is really trying to hit on the head with, yes, I understand. I haven't been able to be there. I've made attempts, but I do care for you guys. And verse 20 just wraps it all together. The deepness of that relationship of you guys are my glory. You're my joy. I mean, I don't know how else we could describe it any deeper. I think really the only comparison to it is that Jesus does the exact same thing for us that he presents us in his glory, he presents us with great joy, and it's all the working that he has done in us. That on the day he comes, he is glorified in what he's produced in us as a new creation in him. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts off with the word, therefore. Therefore is a conjunction word. What's the function of a conjunction in this term? It's to connect Paul's words, his desire to see them face to face, and the way he values them in wanting to present, present their faith at Jesus' return, connect all of that as this isn't merely words, but there's action as well. We continue reading on in verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. The term bear it no longer gets re uh, said in verse 5, but the pronoun's different. In verse 1, it's we, and in verse 5, it's I the plural to the singular. And this is just more evidence that Paul has this personal connection with the Thessalonians. I do care about you guys. And this wasn't some decision that I just suddenly thought about you guys, the church I planted a year or so ago. I wonder how they're doing. But this is, I could bear it no longer. From the day I left you or that night I had to slip away, all the way leading up to just before Timothy comes back with his report, day by day Paul thinks about them anxious about how their faith is doing, hopeful that its labor wasn't in vain. When I could bear it no longer, then I could send Timothy. Then there was action. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. Paul sacrifices his own good for the good of the Thessalonians in sending Timothy. We see in Acts 16, that's when Paul meets Timothy. And Luke describes Timothy as being somebody who 
is very well known and very well spoken of by the brothers in Timothy's own town, but also in nearby towns. So Timothy has a good reputation. So Paul sharpens his knife, takes Timothy under his wing, and off they go town to town. And just imagine the mentoring Timothy's able to receive as they're walking town to town. Because this isn't a 15-minute drive to the next town. And this isn't one hour to Detroit kind of thing. This is days on end getting to the next town, if not weeks on end getting to the next town. So what do they have to talk about during that whole time they're walking? Or during the many nights they sit by the fire? Imagine the mentoring that Timothy is able to receive, not just in doctrine or in theology, but also in the practicality, the application, the wisdom from experience and how to apply the gospel to your own life. Imagine the bond that they have as they're going town to town and they're sharing the good news with people. They're being used by God, not just in themselves, of Paul and Timothy, but they're seeing God work in other people as they share the good news of Jesus and God opens people's eyes to who Jesus is. As, God, as they see God descend the Holy Spirit onto people, the bond that they have working as a team in that sense of being used by God together. Here we see that Paul describes Timothy as a brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And we could go to other passages that, that Paul has written about Timothy in his New Testament letters, but I think it just suffices to go to the end. It's 2 Timothy. Where now we're at kind of the end of the earthly relationship that they have. And Paul's describing Timothy as a beloved child in the faith. And we know that Timothy in his own right now, he's shepherding, he's ministering, he's guiding his own flock. So even in his own ministry, there's growth there. And I think if we look at the kind of the finish line compared to the beginning, there's no surprise that it finishes that way from what we have at the beginning. The, the surprise would be if it didn't get to where it got to. So in knowing the relationship that was established already and in knowing where it's going to go, this is a sacrifice of Paul's to send Timothy away from him. Specifically, we can think it's a sacrifice in that Paul's sacrificing time that he could spend with Timothy, his child in the faith, his son, raising him, teaching him, discipling him. But we can also think of it as Paul sacrificing, let's just say, leisure time. Because if they're working in team with this, of sharing the gospel, we don't know the specifics of how that worked, what percentage did Paul preach, what percentage did Timothy preach. But we do know that if Timothy's gone, the co-laborer is gone, well then Paul's got to do more of the workload. There's more of the teaching, preaching, discipling on his plate, which that would mean, well then Paul gets less sleep time. There's less me time. There's less work time working as a tent maker, which means there's less income. And we could continue on and on and on to think through this, but all of it to say this is a sacrifice for Paul to send Timothy, the co-laborer, the brother in Christ, away from him. But I think maybe the most important thing that really follows the thread of the lesson and really follows the thread of the text, Paul sacrificing his own good for the good of the Thessalonians in that him sending Timothy away is decreasing the size of his flock around him so that the Thessalonian flock can now be increased. In sending Timothy the co-laborer, now the Thessalonian newborn flock has somebody to guide them, to protect them, to lead them. But yet Paul is putting himself in even more danger of isolation. Acts 17, 
Luke tells us that Paul goes in the Thessalonians, and we, he doesn't make any specific mention of anybody being there with him. But here we see the plural, we were willing to be left behind at Athens, and we sent Timothy. So we don't necessarily know if Paul was alone alone in Athens, or if Silvanus or others had been there with him. But it is suffice to say that in sending Timothy the co-laborer, Paul's flock now is much, much smaller than if Timothy had stayed. Paul's sacrificing his own good for the good of the Thessalonians. And I feel like this is too easy of a connection to make to Jesus, so we're not going to. We're going to just switch gears for a second. Because if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand this kind of care. You know, this, this demonstration or this idea of desiring to be with one another, this idea of valuing one another's faith above my own, presenting it before Jesus said his coming, this idea of sacrificing my own good for the good of others. If you're sitting here and this just seems like a foreign language to you, or it could have a thousand different meanings, it may be because you've never experienced the care that Jesus gives. This care that Jesus leaves the throne of glory, angels created all around him to sing his praises, he leaves that because he desires to be with the ones whom the Father has given him. He desires it so much in such a way that it's not just merely in one momentary time that he desires to be with them, but he desires in such a way that he's willing to go to the cross in their place for them reconciling themselves to him so that they can spend eternity in his glory with great joy that's his joy. If you don't understand that kind of care, well then, friend, I know a Savior I want to make known to you. A Savior who cares about his people in such a way that the world has no understanding of. The fourth way that we see Paul demonstrating his care to the Thessalonians is that the sacrificial care that he does is not just merely something just to do type of thing. There's a purpose behind it. There's a purpose in him sacrificing his own time or his own leisure or whatever you want to call it, sending Timothy. And even in sending Timothy, there's a purpose. Timothy's going on mission. It's to establish them. It's to exhort them. And even in that, establish and exhort them, we read on in verse 3, that even itself has a purpose that no one be moved by these afflictions. So I think it's an obvious thing, but it does need to be said that there's layers upon layers upon layers of purpose that Paul has in caring for the Thessalonians. And we need to have that in mind of our care for one another has a purpose in that same way. Timothy's mission and Paul's mission seem very similar and exact at the same time. Similar in the sense that Timothy is sent to establish, exhort them, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul's mission when he was with the Thessalonians, if we remember from chapter 2, verse 12, was to exhort them, encourage them, charge them to walk in a manner of worthy of God. It's similar in wordage. It's similar in circumstances. It's exactly the same in that, call, in that God calls both of them to be used by him to help persevere a faith while brothers and sisters are in affliction. And that should come to no surprise when God calls us to do the same thing in caring for one another. If Jesus does this in imitating it or in establishing our faith, 
if Jesus is the one who produces our faith in affliction, it should come to no surprise that we're called to imitate Jesus in being put in situations, given opportunities where we're praying for one another, where we're encouraging one another, pointing each other to Jesus, at times admonishing or challenging one another to walk in a manner worthy of God. It should come to no surprise that our Savior calls us to imitate Him in the way that He has cared for us. Timothy's and Paul's mission are similar, and at the same time, it's exactly the same in how Jesus himself cares for us. And this goes against the me, me, me ideology, doesn't it? The world throws at us specifically in the sense of you have to stand out. You have to be very different from everybody else, unique in your suffering, or else nobody's going to care about you. The news hits us with this every single week of you're not going to make the headlines. Nobody's really going to care unless you find something specific about yourself that makes you stand out in your suffering. And this is a toxic mentality that really, if we're being honest, trickles down into our conversation, into our mindset of where you can't help me because you didn't go through what I've gone through. I'm not going to listen to your wisdom because you're not specifically doing the same things that I'm doing. We can go generation by generation. I can't teach you because it's a different time. I'm not listening to you because you haven't gone through the same things I have. And again, it's a toxic mentality. Satan uses this to disguise things. And the, the ultimate thing of what he's doing is he's making us think that it's a good thing to isolate ourselves. It's a good thing not to listen to one another and not to be with one another. And he uses that in such ways that we don't even realize it's happening until after it's happened. And now we find ourselves outside of the flock. Paul understands the dangers of the temptations that Satan uses. He understands the danger of isolation. So Paul also gives us the antidote here of this toxic mentality. It's the we mentality. Look down at verse 3, the middle of it. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When he uses the we pronoun, it's the plural, plural pronoun of not just Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy, and not even just Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy, and the Thessalonians, but Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy, and all of Christians throughout time until Jesus returns are destined for affliction. We continue reading in verse 4. For when we, Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy... We're with you. We, Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy, kept telling you beforehand that we, all of Christians throughout time until Jesus returns, are to suffer affliction. The more we understand that we are in this together, well, then the less of the me, me, me ideology we're clinging to. The audacity that I have to think I'm the only one going through what I'm going through. I'm unique in such a way that nobody else has experienced this kind of suffering or this kind of affliction is laughable. That in, in not just our time right now of in our state, all the Christians there, or in our country, all the Christians now, or in the world, in our time, all the Christians now, that nobody else could possibly understand or possibly going through what I'm going through be laughable. But in 2,000 years of the church being established, that I would be the only one who's possibly going through the suffering that I'm going through. And I don't mean to say that to mock myself. I don't mean to say that to mock anybody else. I really 
mean that to turn the coin in a way of our perspective to say, Jesus has done this again and again and again. Generation after generation, there's no suffering that Jesus hasn't overcome. When we think about it specifically, and it's almost dangerous to think about it specifically in that way because that's what the world wants us to do. But we, we think about it specifically. Jesus is not going to come up to somebody and be like, oh, that's one I haven't come across just yet. I can't help them there. He's persevered faith. He's produced in people of faith no matter what the circumstances are. And that should bring us encouragement. That should bring us, bring us confidence in our Savior. In a turn of the coin here, that should bring us more and more understanding that we don't want to passively sit back and just say, oh, well, you know, somebody will reach out. Somebody will go after them. Somebody will care for them. Because in a way, that is coveting what God is giving us, that he's cared for us in such a way. And yeah, we take that, but we're just going to keep it right here with us. We're not going to extend that out to anybody else. The more we understand how Jesus cares for us in that demonstration, the more active we want to be in desiring to be with one another. The more action we want to take in being able to value one another in such a way that we're lifting one another's faith up. Not our own, but we're seeing outside of ourselves and lifting one another's faith up at the day Jesus returns. Their faith. The more we're looking for opportunities to sacrifice our own good for the good of others. And the more we're looking for ways that we can care for one another in a purposeful way. This isn't just a way of how we can then care for one another. It's a way that we're then able to be used by God to demonstrate to others what it looks like to care for one another so that others may see it clearly and understand it more clearly. It's a way where we want to be around brothers and sisters who demonstrate this kind of care to others because we want to see it more clearly. We don't want this to be a, thou a thousand word meaning or a foreign language. We want this to be something that we see and understand and are able to demonstrate back to others. It brings glory to God in that we care for others. It brings glory to God in that we're allowing others to care. But I think ultimately, we bring glory to God in that we're imitating the way our Savior cares for us. Let's pray.